Welcome to the Foul Frontier Poultry Science Unplugged. On this show, we will discuss all things related to poultry science and poultry production. The Foul Frontier is brought to you by the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, the Cooperative Extension Service, and the Center of Excellence for Poultry Science. I'm Dr. Zach Williams, and I will be your host. All right, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Dr. Zach Williams, of course, your host. My guest with me today is Dr. Susan Watkins, and we're going to be talking about water quality. So I'm going to let Dr. Watkins introduce herself and tell her all about her background and every, anything else she wants to tell us about herself. Well, thank you very much, Zach, for inviting me to be here today. Um, it was almost 30 years ago I was sitting exactly where you are in this office and I'd started as a new extension specialist and I, my background was a nutritionist and the next thing I know I was getting all these calls asking about water and I would say well I don't know but I'll find out so here I am almost 30 years later I've learned a few things about water so I'm retired from the extension uh, University of Arkansas Cooperative Extension Service as the poultry specialist, still doing some consulting with the industry and water. So would love to share today my experience and some of the things we've learned and hopefully they can help some production people out there to solve some challenges or maybe to prevent some challenges. All right, good. Thanks. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah, this is your old office. Yeah, my old office, yeah. I've been Glad to see you in it. Yeah? It was making me sad. It was empty for all those years. <laughs> I know, they cleaned it up for me, and here I am. So let's get started. And my first question for you is how do we define, or how do you define water quality? Like what are your characteristics that you look for when you're defining the quality that you're looking for in water? So we're going to focus on poultry water and what I would consider acceptable quality of water is there's no E. coli coliforms in that water. That's just unacceptable to even have one because of the risk of them multiplying. We want water that has a minimal amount of bacteria. My target is less than 10,000 colony forming units of aerobic plate count bacteria total plate count bacteria thousand or less is even better and then when it comes to minerals we want enough minerals dissolved in that water to keep that water from being aggressive what's dissolved in water or what we call the close of water so we don't want pure water or it's going to be dissolving your pipes your metal nipples whatever in that system and after that it's we want to try to have water that's um, going to not be promoting bacterial growth. So we want to minimize iron, manganese, sulfur in the water. And then we don't want minerals that are going to be causing our pipes to seal up over time, like calcium, magnesium hardness. We want to minimize heavy metals, particularly for birds that are on the farm for a long time, pullets, breeders, turkeys, so things like lead, cadmium, those types of metals. We don't want to see very much of that. We don't want to see very much salt in the water or we're literally salting the birds. So those are kind of my starting points for defining quality. What's there? Can we live with it in the amounts or can we fix it so that we can live with it or it's going to promote good performance in an economical manner? Very good. All right. So I've got a picture here. Um, for the people who can't see, this is pretty, I mean, it looks like one step away from mud, right? Correct. Yep. Absolutely. Acceptable yeah. or not? That, that would not be acceptable. And for the most part, poultry are fairly tolerant of poor quality water. If you look at the old guidelines, but in this modern day of age, when we've got birds that are, we are expecting to give us their best performance, high efficiency, high yields, every input has to be perfect, and that includes water. So when we have water that looks murky like this, then it's probably full of iron, which means it's probably at high risk for E. coli, pseudomonas growth, both of those are bacteria that can definitely 
cause an impact on our birds if they if they're in any type of stress situation then and then we have this slow moving water it's warm during brooding it just becomes a mecca for microbial growth so if this is the water that you're giving your birds then you clearly aren't expecting those birds to give you their best performance yeah, I think a lot of it's, you know, they're drinking this day in and day out. Day and in, this day is out. what they have for their entire lives. Yep. Um, so let's look at how we get this water or some, we'll take a look at how we get this water and how we can do some things about it. Um, so let's talk about water quality at the source versus the drinkers. Good question. So at the source, we're going to just get a, a baseline. What is the water parameters? And there's a great list of acceptable, unacceptable parameters that's out there that we can make available to your audience. But at the source, we're going to define what we've got. And then we're going to go and see what are the birds actually drinking. And really the two key things that we like to compare source to what the birds are drinking is the microbial levels. Usually the minerals are settling out in the water or they don't change much from source to the drinker, but the bacteria levels can have huge changes. I've seen any, everything from zero at the source to hundreds of millions in the drinker. And if you expect a new poult or a new chick to drink water that is just loaded with bacteria and give you its best performance, then your expectations are a little high. Okay. Um, so question along those lines, when people are planning for like mitigation strategies, should they look at both or should they just look at more of what they want at the end? Well, what we've found is the closer to the source we can identify contaminants like iron, manganese, sulfur, calcium, magnesium, if those are challenges also, and address them, then the less we're going to have sediment buildup, scale minerals throughout the system. So we deal with those there. We might even need to want to sanitize, start the sanitation process early in your water handling system and then you're going to minimize how much potential challenges you're building up in the distribution system and then sometimes what we may need to do is actually uh, boost our sanitation right before it goes to the birds okay um so question if we're talking about the bird from their perspective like we've talked about what Susan's perspective is on good water quality. What about from the bird? Like, are there things that are off-putting to the bird or are there qualities of water that they prefer? Well, birds are pretty indifferent to taste. They really only taste two things, salt and bitter. They taste salt because they're not going to last long if they do not have salt in their diet. Fortunately, we feed a nutritious food, so they're getting the salt. They taste bitter because the majority of the poisons in nature typically are bitter. And so that's kind of nature's way of telling the birds, hey, if this is bitter, it's probably not a good idea to consume it. So when we do things to our water to make it bitter, adding copper sulfate, while it has great antimicrobial value, it makes the water bitter. So we've kind of got to balance using products like that to not back the birds off, but get the value that we need for that antimicrobial hydrogen sulfide bacteria it can make that water smell like rotten eggs bitter i've seen birds not miss a beat drinking it but it can airlock the lines and cause them to not have enough water but overall they tend to be fairly forgiving on what's in water i've seen birds drink water that looked like orange kool-aid there was so much iron in it it was their best flocks that was great as long as it held up as long as the bad bacteria didn't move in wonderful or as long as the pipes weren't getting sealed over by mineral sediment so they are forgiving but we do want to add things to the water sometimes that can create challenges we start adding cocktails of products and if you aren't comfortable tasting that water then why are you asking your cash crop to do it so if you're adding stuff to that water 
just taste it. You don't have to drink it, but taste it. If it's starting to really taste a little weird or even bitter, then you know you may be doing something that's going to cause your birds to not consume what they need to to get the best performance. Okay, very good. Um, so I've got, what about um, bacteria? You talked some about the different types of bacteria we see. Let's talk about where they come from. Where are we, if it's, you know, if it's, if does it come from the well? Is it coming into the drinker system once it gets in the house? Where, what are the causing bacteria to get into our water? Well, sometimes it is from the well, but a lot of times it's actually from the birds themselves. When they drink, if they're sick, they can deposit bacteria on that nipple drinker and it can wick back up into the water system and create and feed the biofilm. Our filters, anytime we see a sediment building up on a filter, then now we're creating an opportunity for bacteria to really be growing and thriving. Other sources, our injector site, how clean do we keep it? I'll, I'll never forget, there was a wonderful, fantastic grower who years ago called us up and said, you gotta get out here. There's something in my water system that it's clogging my drinkers. So we went out there and we took a sample and we held it up and literally there were these tiny little free living nematode roundworms had filled her water lines and she was on city water supply and it turned out that somebody talked her into using this new vitamin E product in her water lines. She kind of had an old school house where her medicator bucket was out in the barn. The lid to the medicator bucket got knocked off. Air contaminants got into the bucket where this vitamin E product was and it got into the water lines and boom, they were filled with free living nematodes. That day, I realized all bets are off when it comes to what can be in your water line. We had another grower who fought pseudomonas challenges for years on her farm. They had nine service techs out there one day with two air compressors trying to blow the sludge, the goo that built up in her lines literally within two to three days of starting a flock. Started doing some work there and came to find out that the people before them were brush hogging near the wellhead, hit the wellhead, cracked it, started getting um, surface pseudomonas down into the well, contaminated the well, and then it was just the gift that kept giving. So it's just incredible all of the things that we found over the years tracing back to just one misstep managing your water supply and then now you've got contamination in it. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, it just it's in the environment. It's it in the environment. In. It just gets in the wrong place at the right time, and away it goes. And the, the challenge is, and so many people say, oh, well, I'm drinking the same water as my birds are. And I'm like, oh, really? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to pour a cup up out of this water line over here, and you're going to drink it. Oh, no, I'm not drinking that. Well, that right there says, no, you're not drinking the same water that your house is versus what the bar birds are drinking because things are different in a poultry barn versus in our homes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a totally different environment. Absolutely. And it's a lot warmer, it's dustier, you've got feed slow moving, slow moving water. And, and we add things to it. I I've heard everything from pancake syrup to probiotics, on and on and on. We just feel compelled to put things in our water. Yeah. So, um, so you talked about a couple of different groups of bacteria. You talked about E. coli, coliforms, aerobic. Um, why are those three groups are? Why do we use those for indicators? Well, we use E. coli, coliforms as indicator. That's kind of been adapted from the human water supply monitoring. We know if there's any E. coli, coliforms, and that's not a good thing. There's some type of breach in our water supply that's causing fecal contamination mo most of the time if we have coliforms or E. coli in the water. I tend to use total bacteria as my determining factor of what might be going on in the system because when we look for just E. coli coliform, that's like me just looking in the room and saying, 
is Zach here and ignoring if there's anybody else in the building. Yeah, you're missing I the big know picture. The, I want the whole picture I, because E. coli coliforms doesn't tell us if they're staph or strep or pseudomonas or even fungus. If, if systems have been exposed to a lot of antibiotic use, which is not common anymore, but back in the day it was, then we would have yeast and mold blooms in water systems, and they brought their own challenges to the performance of the birds. So if we can look at the big picture and say, hey, do we have a realistic amount of bacteria in here, or is this number in the hundreds of thousands colony forming units per milliliter? We need to take action. That's just not healthy for young, fast-growing, high-efficient birds. Yeah. Um, can we do tests? Like, what would we do for tests for that? Absolutely. Easy. And the very fortunate is the poultry science department has a water quality lab. They can provide you with the tools and a training uh, little video on how to take the water samples and information on how to sample. But the key things on our sampling is, is we want to take a sample that is um, representative of that source or whether it's the well or out in the barn. And if we're taking a sample in the barn, we want to make sure we're not standing in front of a fan where there's a lot of matter blowing and we're not waving around our sampling tools. We want to quickly get that sample, get it sealed up, and get it out. And I like to stand in front of the fan if you have to take a sample in front of the fan, so I'm blocking that airflow. We want that sample to truly reflect what is in that water. Yeah, and we'll. Uh, I'm gonna put a link in for the water quality great, lab too. Great, great. Give those guys a spill. They're they're a wonderful resource and very economical resource. Yep. So we talked about the different microbes. Are there limits? You talked about E. coli was zero. or coliforms were zero. Um, what about for aerobic? Is so there a limit you like aerobic, to place on that one? You know, we when we see an aerobic number, it doesn't tell us exactly what's there. So we don't know if it's good, bad, whatever. So our rule of thumb is about 10,000 colony forming units per mil. If that number starts getting higher than that, it's like, uh, okay, what's going on here? Why do we have this bacteria thriving in our water system? We need to do some cleaning to, to, to get those numbers back down. Okay. Um, so the next picture I've got is something we see a very common in water lines. And it's... Can you uh, tell us what this is and kind of describe it to the people who are just listening? Well, this is the regulator, and this started me on the journey of actually looking inside of water systems because we can take that drip sample from the well from a water line, and hopefully that's going to be representative of what's going on. But what if... I'm standing out in front of a building and I'm counting who's coming out of the building. Well, if everybody's in class or they're busy in their office and I'm counting who's coming out, then my number's gonna be very low and I'm gonna go, well, there's nobody in the building. When in reality, there's a lot of people in the building, they're just busy. Same with biofilm. And in this picture, it's a regulator and it was on a farm, they had city water supply. They chlorinated their water it was a almost brand new turkey operation, yet flock after flock, the poults broke with Bordetella. And they were, they cleaned this barn after every flock. We could have had a picnic in this barn. It was so clean, yet here came the Bordetella next flock. So I, they, as always, extension specialists always get called out when we are scratching our heads and we can't figure out what's going on. Well, let's ask them. Maybe they can have some ideas. So we're out there and I said, well, what does it look like in the water line? And this gentleman kindly took it apart and we swabbed it. And guess what was living in this biofilm inside the regulator? Was it Bordetella? Bordetella. So here was, they did all of this work to get that barn ready, and they had been overlooking a very key component to controlling the Bordetella, a stagnant water regulator. And I think what a lot of people don't understand about biofilms, it, this, this is not just like 
one bacteria. It's a whole community. Absolutely. And they do things like they can protect themselves, can't they? They communicate. They work together. They're, they're like a city. They can transport food. They can store food. And a key thing that we know about biofilms is very much like cities is once they become too crowded, once it becomes a little difficult to get rid of their waste or get enough food, they're going to mushroom up part of that population and it's going to release into the water stream. And so I think that's why on some operations we see challenges show up very consistently flock after flock at certain times in the flock. That's kind of when the biofilm goes through its maturation process, releases, and those pathogens travel right down to the birds. So um, we got our biofilm. We talked about it. What about sampling? Because this looks like you would not, I'm assuming you're, or for our guests, you're not just going to take a drip sample and not enjoy taking apart regulators and and getting them completely sealed back together where they don't leak so a simpler way to determine do we have a biofilm challenge in a system is to use the little sponge swabs and go into the end of the line the end of the lines are kind of a weak point they're a dead end spot most of our um, flushing systems are up and out and that really doesn't flush everything out of that end of that line like you would hope it could. So here is a place where you can actually go into that line. And some of our regulators actually have a place where you can unscrew and go inside of that regulator and, and swab inside of there. So by swabbing in these weak points in the water system, we can find out, do we have a biofilm that's thriving that needs to be controlled and we can address that if we understand that it's present through very thorough cleaning when no birds are present in the barns okay um so yeah so that's what these pictures kind of just describe or depict um they're just taking some sterile forceps it looks like in a sponge going in there and swabbing around swabbing yep just getting a nice and and one thing we've learned is you really need a hydrated sponge that's going to cover that surface area inside that pipe wipe it well was working with the vet a few years ago and we were on a turkey farm and they were doing some work on the water storage unit as it and as they had cut the line as it left that water storage tank and so I said hey this would be a great thing let's swab in this line and see what's going on so the vet took her little um, q-tip curette and wiped in there and then I came behind with the sponge took them back to the lab 5 30 that evening we we plated it by 7 30 the next morning the the plate that came from my sponge was just covered in bordetella the one where she had used her little curettes um, q-tip wiping in the line there was hardly any growth so the sponge gave us a better visual of what was living in that system and and that's what we want we want to use tools that are going to give us the most accurate information so we can make the best decisions do you think the sponge is a little better at breaking apart the biofilm and getting it off the pipes and drinkers? I certainly think it's going to do a better job of wiping. I was in Argentina a few years ago, and they were using almost a Brillo pad sponge. And I thought, well, that ought to break off that, that biofilm if it. you're wiping inside that line. They were very proud of that technique that they had developed. Yeah. Good deal. Okay. Um, so we got bacteria. Are there other microbes that we see? in um, the lines that are of concern? Fungal. That's the other challenge that we see. Sometimes, and you may show a picture of it in a minute, but we'll get these slime blooms, and that can be the Pseudomonas, the crinoform family of bacterias, or it can be fungal. And yeast. I, I think we can see some challenges with yeast. There's some good yeast out there, and there's some very harmful yeast populations out there. Those are two other families of organisms that we have seen over the years that can be challenges. So we know we use, you know, sanitizers for bacteria. What should... Uh... What about against like yeast and molds? 
Well, what we found is the yeast and molds tend to like more lower pH. So those organic acids can actually enhance yeast and mold. In those cases, we found good old bleach. Raising the pH, adding that chlorine residual can have a very effective um, action against yeast and mold, as well as the pseudomonases. Sometimes when we see that slime bloom coming on early in flocks, we've been running some organic acids. I encourage people shut that organic acid off, get them going on bleach. Good rule of thumb, four ounces of household bleach, gallon of water, that's your stock solution, and then run it one to 128. And that can, that will raise the pH, that kind of shocks the environment out of that comfort zone for those organisms, as well as adds that chlorine residual. Okay. Yeah, I've got a picture here. Yeah, that's um, that's a classic example there. Of our slimes. We've got, it looks like a, a nipple drinker there on the left and then a filter on the right, correct? Correct, yep. So pretty sure that was a pseudomonas organism on the filters. And almost certain that on the nipple, that was kind of a fungal bloom that was occurring due to organic acids in the water and the systems just weren't clean. Started adding these therapeutic products and next thing we know, we've got a mess on our hands. They had to literally pull out every single nipple and clean that off. It could not be cleansed out with using the concentrated hydrogen peroxides or anything like that and you got a flock of birds in a house and they can't get water you're in a critical situation how um so you know we know they clog a lot of water lines and drinkers but what about these filters what happens to the effectiveness of your filter once Great you get like a questions. slime that looks like this or even like you, well, you don't have a filter, you have a block. <laughs> you have just essentially shut off your water flow to your birds. There's a producer that for years had a lot of sulfur in his water, and it was creating this gray paste on his, sil on his filters. And we identified that it was a sulfur, and we said, you know, you really need uh, a chlorination, oxidizer, filtration to get rid of it. Because every time that filter's being blocked in that barn, you're reducing water flow. And, and this is a producer that was a good, did everything right, except his performance was never there. Finally, finally, he took our advice, put in oxidation, filtration, went from below average consistent performance to in the top 10% of the company. So probably within two flocks, the system more than paid for itself. So those filters are vulnerable to sediment buildup, creating blockages that prevent optimal water flow. And if you're not giving those birds the water they need to hydrate that feed and get the value out of it, then you're throwing away money. How often should a grower check those filters? Well, they should be just looking at that filter every time they walk in the barn. And if you're starting to see that sediment building up and the more water they use, if you've got one part per million iron, you use a million gallons of water, you're probably talking 100 pounds of iron at the end of the day is going through your water system. And that's a lot of mineral buildup over time. So if you're seeing those challenges, and your filters are getting clogged and you're having to change them more than once or twice a week, then you need to back up, get to the source, and put in a system that's going to filter and then flush in the middle of the night when there's no water usage so that the next morning those filters in those barns are staying clean. That should just be a minimal cleanup, those barn filters, not the key water cleanup for your operation. Okay, I'd like to go back to something you just said for a second, because I think a lot of people don't think about how much material is actually going through the system. You said about one part per million of iron, for example, would a hundred pounds a day or something? Well, if you, so- uh, Or depending uh, on how much water is right, going you, through you your got house. an eight house farm, you use a million gallons of water between your cool cells the birds drinking you got one part per million iron over time that's a hundred pounds of iron 
and then you multiply that by six blocks. I've seen storage tanks on farms that probably had two feet of sludge in the bottom of them because no, there was no filtration system and the water outlet was up off the bottom. So this sludge was just allowed to build up over time. It's just, it's mind boggling to think about, yeah, we're, we're looking at a very small amount in the water, but the volumes of water we use on these large farms, it adds up. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about. No, they don't. Is how much water goes through there. And even just a small, tiny amount of anything, it will just snowball over time. And then totally. you've got a huge number. Uh, all right, good. So we covered bacteria, biofilms. What about pH? You know, we either got neutral, basic, acidic. What's typical for Arkansas? What's typical for Arkansas? I would say in the poultry producing areas, we tend to be around neutral to slightly above, slightly in the basic range. So seven to seven and a half. There are a few areas that are fortunate and that they've got in the six range of pH. That's just fantastic when you've got that because you can run some bleach and life's great. Tend to be the places where they have more iron in the water on those types of operations. But for the most part, we're around, you know, slightly above neutral. Few operations further south you go, we may get up into higher pHs, almost to nine. Is there a upper and lower limit for what's acceptable? So, as far as the birds are concerned, they they tend to adapt. Again, if the water's not bitter and they've got plenty of it, they tend to adapt to these minerals in the water. There's really my friend, Dr. David McCreary, he's a nutritionist for Pilgrim's Pride, and he has been uh, correlating water quality parameters to performance. And at the end of the day, he says, you know, they're very tolerant of about any level of minerals in the water, pH, what have you. But what we, we want to think about is, okay, we've got calcium, magnesium, we've got alkalinity in the water. Are we using cool cells? what's the damage being done to those cool cells over time that we could prevent by keeping that recirculation tank neutral or or maybe slightly on the acidic range or what's it doing to our pipes yeah that was my question like what kind of effect will ph have on our pipes or our drinker systems so we don't really want to see the ph too much below six because then the equipment people start to get antsy that we're potentially damaging seals in the nipple drinkers uh, things like that getting the ph above eight now we're we're risking that buildup of alkalinity or that that scale mineral buildup and that will just is devastating for cool cells because what happens is, is as water evaporates, we're concentrating those minerals, we're pushing that pH up even higher, and it's just becoming the perfect recipe for stalactites on your cool cells, if you will. Yeah, so this was a cool cell pad that was in from the middle of the state, and it weighed 26 pounds. There was so much mineral buildup on it. Do you think you got any airflow through that? Absolutely not. So we not only are probably compromising water quantity for the flop, but we're compromising cooling air quality coming through those yeah, those cool cells. And it's very expensive to replace cool cells. So little bit of preventative maintenance, monitoring that recirculation tank, watching if it's starting to get up much above eight. We need to either flush that recirculation tank out, or maybe we need a little add a little acid to it, keep it down. A few years ago, I was visiting a lot of farms in the um, Delmarva area on the shore, and they tend to have lower pH up there. Their cool cells were 14, 15, 16 years old. They look brand new, and it's just because the the cool cells were more tolerant of the lower pH water than they are of the higher pH water. And some people say, oh my goodness, you don't want to run any chlorine on your cool cells. 
it's not the chlorine. It's all of those high pH additives that come along with chlorine that's the challenge. So again, not letting those um, additives uh, concentrate, build up in those recirculation tanks, then your cool cells should last you for years. How, um, how hard is it to test water pH? You can get test strips. Just make sure they're good fresh test strips. I have never had great luck with um, keeping a pH meter functioning properly. I would encourage you, if you want to know what your pH is, is pull a sample, get it to the lab. Let those guys where they are, they are standardizing their meters, they're going to be able to give you a more accurate number as to what that pH is. Yeah, I feel like the strips are kind of going to get you in the ballpark. It's going like, to get you in the ballpark, yeah. Hey, we might have a problem. We might be good. Let's yep. go send it off to the lab. Correct, correct. Yeah, most of those handheld meters just don't last. Yes, do not last. We did a lot of work with handheld meters back in the day when we were looking at what was the best pH for the drinking water, and it was just murder to try to keep those pH meters functioning properly. So producer has pH out of whack what are their options well if the water's too acidic like if you're from your part of the world Zach down in South Mississippi I don't know if you're South Mississippi boy or not but Mississippi Mississippi yeah, yeah okay South Mississippi where the pHs would be in the three three and a half four range they needed to add baking soda they needed to neutralize that water for those birds if my pH is high and I've got a lot of alkalinity associated with it, when I say a lot, if we start getting over 150 parts per million alkalinity in the water, then I'm going to pick an inorganic acid to try to bring that pH down. And if I want to use an organic acid, I'm going to use it, but I'm not going to try to rely on that organic acid to lower the pH to 4 or whatnot. It, it's just going to be not cost effective and we're probably going to back the birds off on the water because of the amount we're trying to add okay good um so let's talk about water hardness not typically a prop not typically a health concern for no, our birds no. but definitely can have some effects on the drinker on the systems yep what um what do we see from like water hardness so water hardness if we start getting over 80 parts per million calcium more than 40 to 60 parts per million magnesium, and we have that 150 plus alkalinity in the form of bicarbonates, carbonates, sulfates, then we're, we're seeing those potential hardness mineral issues. And what you want to do in that case, if we can just kind of keep that pH in the six, six and a half range, that's going to help keep those minerals dissolved. We're going to be monitoring those recirculation tanks when they're being heavily used in the summer. We're going to make sure that pH isn't getting up above 9 because we're going to neutralize it with some inorganic acid. And you might want to possibly use a good mineral cleaner, sequestering agents, what they call it. And they're usually phosphoric acid-based acids to cleanse that scale mineral out of those systems between flocks is there uh what can they do about scale if you get it on like the um cool pads you're better off preventing it that would be my advice once you have rocked over that cool cell pad it's almost impossible to get all of that dissolved back out so stay ahead of it use your yeah keep that ph managed in those research tanks in the six-ish range if you can to to keep prevent that scale mineral uh there are some great products out there for descaling your cool cells but that's a lot of work that could have been prevented and money yeah we're kind of an ounce of pre ounce of ounce prevention, prevention pound of, pound of, cure, of right? cure correct all right um total dissolved solids we hear about this all the time. Can you explain to our listeners what this is and then um, what kind of effects they can have on poultry production in our well, drinker systems? you know, total dissolved solids is just adding up everything that's in the water and coming up with a number. And I equate it to saying, well, Zach, I have a diet that I want you to feed to this flock and it has 30% nutrients. 
What does that mean to you? What are the next questions you're going to ask me if I told you, well, this diet has 32% nutrients. What does that mean to you? It that doesn't mean anything. doesn't mean anything. That's kind of how I feel about total dissolved solids. It's just a total number when... If we're going to make good decisions, we got to know the specifics. How much sodium and chloride are in the water? How much calcium, magnesium, iron, manganese, sulfur, lead, bicarbonates? We need to know what the specific values are, not just this conglomerate number. Now, with that said, there's a veterinarian by the name of Jean, um, Jean-Pierre Valencourt who realized that we got to have about 250 parts per million alkalinity total in water that is kind of why we can drink coca-cola with a ph of 3.2 because that alkalinity acts as a buffer so when we get into these water supplies that have no buffering capacity low ph the birds physiologically start saying something's not right here i've got to back off and that's how we add that alkalinity that buffering capacity with baking soda or soda ash so we we need to know specifics what exactly is in the water in order to understand are we okay do we need to fix something or is there going to be a challenge coming down the pike that i'm unaware of right now and again that goes back to getting your water tested absolutely yeah go to a reputable reputable lab get a total mineral profile as well as your bicarbonates alkalinity number and ph then you have facts that you can make sound decisions with okay um what about seasonal uh do we have seasonal changes between like either hot cold spring fall or not so much of effect on our water because our houses are maintained at least from an environmental standpoint well, if we're using surface water supplies, we can get seasonal effects, what we call the fall turnover, as water, that warm water cools in the cooling, you know, environment, then that heavy cold water is going to fall, and it's going to get that, it's going to start bringing solids up off the water. We, we call it the fall turnover. It's kind of why in our area in the fall, the water starts tasting a little funny. I don't know if you noticed that when you moved here. It didn't taste as lovely. It's safe. It's just the organics just become a little more of a challenge to clean up because of that fall turnover, surface water supplies. Now, when we have good deep wells, we typically don't see as much challenge unless we start getting a lot of droughts in areas and a lot of usage on water supplies. Then I'll start to see where we get dirty look to water and that's just we're starting to concentrate those minerals in that water supply is it a challenge just depends what bacteria might move in as that water supply changes quality um, what can a grower do well a, a grower Other can than change the weather which you know can't I guess do we that no nope, we have to react to the weather so i would be monitoring those in-house filters if i didn't already have a water filtration system in place at the source i would be monitoring those barn filters and if i started to notice a little off color or something going on then i would go hey um i might need to have my water tested and just 20 bucks i think is about the cost of the water analysis just a tremendous bargain for finding out is my water supply vulnerable to change yeah we always tell people get stuff tested before you do anything absolutely otherwise you're just kind of going blind that's right we're back to that well you got a 32 percent nutrient diet okay (laughs) Um, so when we talked about intervention strategies let's talk about how that gets into the water system what like to talk about injectors or dosers. Um, Can you give us kind of a rundown of how those work or what they're, just kind of give us a rundown on those? So the traditional dosers, medicators is what we used to call them, although that's not what we call them anymore. This is kind of, would be one here. As a gallon of water passes through, 
it sucks an ounce of product or whatever volume it's programmed to into that that water passing through and is blended with it and then passes through there's also the new peristaltic injectors the stinner pumps if you will is one type of brand and that is attached to a flow meter the flow meter detects a gallon of water has passed so that tells that that peristaltic pump to run and then it will drop product into the water stream now what we found with the peristaltic pumps is they tend to just drop product on top of the water stream it's not blended into it at the point of injection and you would think well i've got bins in the pipe it's got to go up and around and down to the water lines you'd think that would be adequate to blend the product into the water and it's not necessarily so we've we a good friend of mine was doing some work with a acidifiers and they're trying to monitor to see hey when did we get the right ph that we are targeting in the water and they were using a stinner pump in, a, in one barn and a traditional medicator doser type in another. In the traditional doser, it was very uniform. In the stinner, it might be four, it might be seven, it might be six. It was all over the board because there was nothing forcing that product to blend uniformly into the water. So I think that's a challenge for us. I have people sometimes tell me, hey, I tried to run hydroperoxide in the water and it made the birds back off. My next question would be, are you, were you injecting it with a standard pump? Because you may have been slugging that product into the water and the birds were hitting it and they were going, whoa, you know, this is a little stout. I, I, ooh, I don't know if I want to drink this or not. Whereas having it nice and uniform at a more uh, correct dosage level to where the birds wouldn't even know it's in the water. If a producer or grower is using one of those types of pumps, what can they do to help um, evenly distribute that whatever they're using through the they water can line. create uh, many mixing chambers one way to do it is just increase the pipe volume to where it kind of dumps into a little section of pipe say maybe you have a you know four six inch section of pipe that's a couple of feet long to where it kind of creates a mixing and then it squeezes back down i've seen people just make uh multiple bins in the pipe but again every time we put a bin in a pipe we we reduce water volume or flow so we, we've got to be careful there i've seen people put their products into uh, holding tanks kind of splashing it in that will help mix it I've seen pipes with baffles built in. So as the water flushed past, these baffles broke up that, that direct flow and forced it to mix. There's lots of ways we can create mixing. Uh, growers are some of the most, uh, um, I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're just creative in solving problems. So if you let them know there's a potential challenge here, it's amazing how they can come up with ways to fix that challenge. Sometimes we just need to let them know, hey, this is a problem for you. Yeah, they can be pretty innovative. Ab and pretty innovative. Creative. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Zach. You're welcome. All right. So we kind of talked about all these things. Let's talk about kind of wrap up with our intervention for our different um, things or problems we might have. So microbes, bacteria. What's going to be our most common intervention strategy? Most common intervention strategy is a good, thorough cleaning of the system with a, a, a product that's designed to remove biofilm. The best products that I know of up right now are the concentrated hydrogen peroxides. Then, that water, as we're flushing out that concentrated product, again, we're using that with no birds present, we're going to be flushing in water that has low a, a drinking level of sanitizer in it. We do not want to give any microbes that might have got left behind a chance to repopulate the system. So we're going to have maybe four to six parts per million chlorine, maybe two to four parts per million chlorine dioxide, 50 to 75 ppms of hydrogen peroxide in that drinking water coming in for those birds to drink. Then right before that new flock comes in, we're going to flush, bring in fresh, clean, sanitized water, start those birds on the right foot. All right. What about uh, pH? 
what can they do? What are the ones you mentioned before? We'll go just mention them again. Well, if we've got to descale that system, we might want to use one of the phosphoric acid-based line cleaners. It does an excellent job of descaling the, that mineral buildup out of there. If we have high pH and we want to bring it back down to neutral, or maybe we want to give those birds years ago, we found that if you lowered the pH in the three to four range, just during feed transitions, that would improve feed efficiency. And I think it just helps to preserve that feed as those textures change, the feed types change, they gorge. That just kind of helps preserve it as they transition through those feed changes. So we can use an inorganic uh, based mineral or a, excuse me inorganic based acid to help lower that pH for that type of um, therapeutic treatment okay uh, what about like sediments or minerals sediments or minerals if it's if it's a challenge then we might want to do something like a big bubba farm guard filter these are just large canister filters that have the capacity of about 180 string filters. And you put a pressure gauge on either side of it. You know when your pressure's building up, so you can just shut your water off, pull it out, clean it off, put it back in and keep going. Or if I want something that will manage itself, I would invest in the IronX technology. It's a resin-based filtration system as long as there's an oxidizer in front of it it stays charged so that you never have to change out the medium like you would a green sand filter and it you can program it to back flush in the night i have yet to hear of anyone who has installed this filtration system who said this was not the best idea or the best solution for my you know, iron manganese sulfur challenges okay um, what about, so when the growers are putting a plan together, where should they start or should they just throw everything up in there and see what sticks? Cause I know we've all been in grower houses where they've bought everything under the sun and then they just have a wall of water treatment and they have no idea what's doing what, or if any of it's doing anything. Oh, that's a great question. And I've seen that a lot where treat, they thought they were their investment was working for them so again back to square one we're going to test that water at the source to see what do we have then we're going to seek out good advice on what to do about it i strongly encourage you to to come to zach i hope he's going to be the new water expert because i'm retired now but just get an unbiased opinion on here's what my challenges are here's what you need to do about it because you can get sold a lot of unusual treatments out there if you're not careful and you want to make sure that if you're going to invest your money you're doing it wisely it's just seen so many things that just didn't pay off for for producers over the years and and they were you know in good faith purchasing this because somebody made it sound like it would work for them so get that good that get that invest properly and then start using it then pull a sample after whatever you're doing to treat your water for whatever it is whether you know one thing we didn't talk about calcium magnesium we use water softeners but we're going to be adding salt to that water so we want to make sure we're not over salting that water so pull a sample send it to the lab and see did the treatment fix my problem Good. Um, are there some products that the growers should not mix or should not be used together? Well, you never want to add chlorine and an acid in the same bucket. I had a grower one time tell me that she accidentally did that and the green cloud chased her out of her medicator room. She was lucky. It could have killed her. So if we're going to do chlorination acidification, we need to do those with separate injectors, separate buckets, and we get it, have, need to have one mixed before we add the second one. Otherwise, you get a, get a slug of acid, it hits the chlorine, it just gasses the chlorine off in the line. So we don't want to add, uh, we don't want to add ammonia and acids. That can be a challenge. We don't want to add ammonia and chlorine products together. So those are kind of the key things there. This was something that I had seen or read about that I wasn't, didn't really know a whole lot about is water. So I'm going to ask, 
What about oxidation reduction potential of oh. water as far as that relates to their treatment or intervention options? That's, that's a great question. So ORP, oxidation reduction potential, measures the millivolt energy that chlorine has in the water. So when we have free chlorine in the water and the pH is right in the below 7 range, that chlorine is looking for a way to get into the bacteria and disrupt it, kill it. And that, the ORP measures that energy of that chlorine, so how strong it is. And what we found over the years is if we have a 750 to 800 millivolt energy, and that's by adjusting pH, having some chlorine residual there, not over-chlorinating that water, we, we could make baby bottles with that water. It's, it's very, it, it's not, there's not going to be any bacteria in it. Is that something just a pretty simple test? Absolutely. Um, you can, well, you can just get a little ORP meter. They tend to be more uh, reliable than pH meters, but don't get the ORP pH meter dual meters because then you can't clean the ORP meter. What we found over time is if you get a little bit of film on that ORP uh, probe, we can clean it with a little bit of white vinegar. Just soak it over in a few hours in that. That'll clean that, and then it'll be working well again. So that, there's a lot of folks in the industry who use that number. And I was just visiting with someone the other day who has an inline ORP meter in his water system. Didn't cost. He said it wasn't very expensive. And he can dial in a number and says, okay, I want my ORP to be 750. And it also, there's also a pH probe, too. And he says, I want my pH to be 6. So the water's flowing past these probes. If the pH or the ORP dips down, it adds a little more chlorine. If the pH starts to creep up, it adds a little bit more acid. And he said he's had very good luck with it, and it wasn't that expensive to install. So that's a, that's a thought, and that's a technology that I hope will become more consistent in the industry we just gotta be also checking it so on occasion a few years ago we saw where these probes kind of get went a little haywire and they added too much acid or too much chlorine so we need to have our backup checks to make sure that that equipment remains working well but that is a great tool particularly if you got a big operation and you don't have a lot of time to be messing with your water but you want to make sure you're giving the birds good water that's a good suggestion. Um, last question. Where can a grower go for help? Like this is a huge complex issue and a lot of it seems like it's down to more or less the grower um, with help from their integrator. Where can they go for reliable sources of information? Well, the the poultry science department had a lot of publications at one time providing um, assistance with water. The lab, the water quality lab, has good fact sheets on how to take samples and information on how to interpret your water analysis. And I got to give a pitch for the folks at the University of Alberta. They've actually developed a water app that you can, it's kind of a decision tree. You can start plugging in your information about your water and it will help you to make decisions based on your specific water challenges. Yeah, that is one good thing I like about the Water Quality Lab here is they give you your limits. They'll tell you whether you're good, whether you're kind of in that like, oh, something might be going on. And they tell you like, oh, you're unacceptable. That's we got to right. fix something. Yep. So yep. they also make not recommendations, but they tell it, you. It gives you a starting where point. You're, at. you're not yeah. just staring at some numbers going, you know, am I flying a spaceship here? What does this mean? Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? I just hope that water will continue to be more and more the forefront of importance on poultry operations. We've got the air right. We've got the environment right. We spend mega money on research and R&D on making sure the feed is good. We've got to give water its credit, too. Birds drink twice as much water as feed. If they're not getting the, the right quality and quantity, we're not getting our money's work. All right. Well, thanks for that. And thanks, Susan. 
Um, and thanks for listening, and we'll see everybody next time. On behalf of myself and our guests, I would like to thank everyone for listening into the show. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me via email at zwilliams at uada.edu. That's z-w-i-l-l-i-a-m-s at u-a-d-a dot e-d-u. And thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.